Hey everybody, this is Laura and Rochelle from Hawara NP. And you're listening to the podcast for and about nurse practitioners in Aotearoa, New Zealand. This is Laura. Hi, I'm Rochelle, and together we are Hawara MP. This is episode five, Resources for the Nurse Practitioner. So, Laura, I don't know about you, but I often phone our local pharmacist. So in one of the clinics I work or have worked, we had a pharmacy very close by, and I would often rely heavily on their input, mainly because we had just come out of COVID and there were lots of supply chain issues. So I would be constantly phoning my friend Jenny saying, hey, Jenny, I want to prescribe this. If there wasn't something available, she would kind of direct me to a better suited medicine in lieu of that medicine being available. So to me, as an NP working in primary care, I think pharmacists have huge input and value in supporting the care that we provide to our patient. They often can kind of see medicine interactions a little bit different to us as well, especially if we don't have all of the information or if our PMS hasn't been reconciled They can also spot where de-prescribing can be taken place maybe and we can have those conversations. They offer medication views with patients, don't they, in the communities. And so I know down in Taupo with my father-in-law, they have a clinical pharmacist who doesn't prescribe but is employed in their clinic and offers huge support to medical and nurse practitioner colleagues. So that's just a little bit about how I use pharmacists. How do you use pharmacists in your practice? Laura? Well, I've noticed I've been using them a lot more since, say, COVID, for instance, definitely during the early days. I would often go in there. I was working at a clinic at the time that had a pharmacy attached, and I would go in there and I would talk to the pharmacist and say, you know, if this isn't in stock, what can I give here? And talking a little bit about, you know, contraindications, that sort of thing. So that was really valuable. But since COVID, more so about things like the antivirals, uh, especially since the antivirals, our choices have been reduced somewhat. Patients with complex medications often have interactions, and that really does need a collaborative input from a few different people in order to figure out what we need to change, because mm. it's often changing some medications or reducing some medications or stopping some medications, and that's not always possible. So pharmacy are just really valuable for that. Right, like their whole job is medicines. Their pharmacists, you know, like I know a portion of what they know. And to be honest, Laura, I think as nurses, it's quite ingrained in us to work across multidisciplinary. So it's quite normal practice for us to engage other colleagues in the wider sectors to help optimize our patient care. Exactly. It's kind of understanding where your own need is to ask for help, figuring out where the boundaries of our own practice are in terms of knowledge. You know, we're not going to be able to know everything about everything. And medications are just one very small part of what we need to do. So asking people that are a lot more immersed in medications makes sense. Agree, because there are just factors that change so frequently since COVID with the supply chain issues, like I mentioned, that would just be ignorant of me to think I know everything about what's happening in the pharmacy space. So I think they're just invaluable to primary care 
particularly myself working in that space. Exactly. And I think the community pharmacist role is actually quite exciting. I heard a little bit about that just recently, as you discussed before, having a Mm. pharmacist come in a few days a week to the practice, they can help with things like medication, reconciliation, Mm. looking at complex medication regimes. I think that role is the clinical pharmacists and not all of them prescribe. The one that I'm aware of certainly doesn't prescribe, but there are some roles that I know is happening out East Auckland is that they have a prescribing um, or about to be a prescribing pharmacist. So just the variability within the role is quite exciting for them. And now that pharmacy are offering immunizations as well. So they're a huge resource in getting your rat tests or your flu vaccine, boosterix vaccine, you know, lots of vaccines that are now available to pharmacy to help improve access for our patients. Exactly. Treating basic UTIs, that sort of thing, emergency contraceptive, there's a few things they do. And so, and it's always growing. Just recently, I referred one of my patients off to a pharmacy for sleep studies. They've started doing that sort of thing, which is quite interesting. So I think that sort of thing is quite exciting. And I think that does reduce inequities because there's a lot of people that can't afford secondary services for that sort of thing. I agree. That's amazing because I do know with a lot of the work that I did with NRHCC in trying to improve community management of minor ailments in context that pharmacists only supply melatonin for example so it is quite enlightening I think to us who haven't heavily relied on them as a resource now learning what they can do exactly and what other resources would you use in primary care Well, one of the main ones that I use every day, all day, I have it up constantly on my dashboard, is Regional Health Pathways. It's a up-to-date way to get the information about a number of different conditions. The conditions on there are growing all the time. And the good thing is is that it's updated frequently. So I'll just let Laura talk to this because in my non-clinical role for primary care, I work as a clinical editor for Health Pathways. So I'll let Laura know how good Health Pathways is as a resource for primary care and or nurse practitioners everywhere really in any specialty. So continue Laura, I just kind of wanted to preface and disclaim that part. Fabulous, well it is a great resource as you know Rochelle and information is changing on it frequently too so even if it's something I've used before or seen before multiple times I'll often just refer back number one because it initially outlines things like red flags so it's amazing at telling you for instance if somebody's coming through that has something that's needs to be referred straight off the bat. And then it prepares you for getting the patient worked up. And often that will give you an idea about whether the condition is is what uh, they actually have. The other thing is knowing about different tests that you need to do, things that you need to check. It has links to videos. Because the good thing about it is how it lays out when I'm editing is it's assessment, then management, and then your request essentially well the disease pathway or condition pathway what you should be doing based on this presentation just guiding you through exactly with little drop down things to show if you need to look at this then look at that bit and then if you need to do this then you drop down that bit and it's not to say you don't know that already it's just that during that time frame of a primary care consult of 20 minutes 15 to 20 minutes that it's very easy to kind of get lost in doing other reviews that necessarily aren't kind of what you need at the end at the end for the specific condition. And nothing is ever straightforward. Every presentation is a little bit different and sometimes you can get stuck 
on one thing and patient can walk away and you're like, oh dear, mm-hmm. <laughs> I forgot to do this or I forgot to add that. So having that up and, and checking on that frequently is a good way to make sure that I have all the information I need without needing to go back to the patient constantly and say, hey, look, I actually need to get this from you as well and I need you to do this as well, which is inconvenient. And I just want to be clear that this is a clinician resource. It's not a patient-facing resource. Exactly. So the other thing that it does is it talks about different management strategies and things that essentially, because secondary care are very involved in writing the guidelines, uh, as I am aware of. Is that right, Rochelle? Yeah, they act as our subject matter experts. So like we're liaising with them on their specialty around the region and kind of what's offered and what's best practice for sure. So they'll tell you exactly what you need to get everything in line for if a specialist or a secondary care referral is needed as the eventual outcome or what you do for the patient. And having that in line is important, as you know, when you're sending your referrals, um, making sure you've ticked the boxes, that you've checked everything to know that you're actually referring to the right place and the diagnosis that you're considering is the correct one. I think too, because primary care has its limitations. So we need to know, all right, our resources in primary care are no longer able to serve this patient and their condition. Now we need to seek secondary support. And that's really where the pathway comes in as a huge benefit for us as clinicians in primary care, doesn't it? Absolutely. So I think that was definitely worth a special mention, regional health pathways, because it honestly is such a lifesaver in my practice every day, even now. And what other resources would you use in primary care? BPAC is a big one as well. Is that the antibiotic yeah. guideline? Like, because I have that one up, I'm like, favourite. <laughs> it just makes it so <laughs> easy. Yeah, it's great. It's got the dosing regimes. It's got, um, you know, where you should go next. And it's set, set out really simply, obviously. Yeah. What I quite like about it too is it's like, oh, if the patient's got a contraindication, maybe just use this one instead, rather than kind of, it's just kind of, really laid out kind of for me as a visual learner it's just kind of easy peasy I kind of have it right in front of me and it takes two seconds to look at and often when the patient's sitting with you in a consult and you're limited for time you don't want to be flicking between different things trying to find the correct page that you should be using BPAC's also got some really other good resources too for instance contraceptive pills they've got a great guideline for that obviously you need to check to make sure the guidelines are up to date because their articles are so in-depth that it must take a while to release them but just make making sure that you're prescribing the right thing. It's got the background for why you're prescribing it, things you need to be watchful for, and and usually a really good preamble on what the condition is and what the concerns are around it. So I find BPAC to be quite invaluable in a lot of places. And the newer guidelines they're releasing are just fabulous. So that's quite exciting. I saw a new one recently on diverticulitis. That's just been updated. Very good things that they're releasing all the time there. And another really good one is, I don't know if you use this one, Laura, antimicrobial stewardship. AMS, it's available on Tafutu order and it's also got additional tidbits of certain medicines and kind of when to use them or what to look out for as well. So that's a really useful one if you don't already know it. it no, I didn't know about that one, but I think I'd find that very interesting because that's something I've recently been taking a lot of interest in is antimicrobial stewardship. Yeah, so antimicrobial stewardship, AMS, and it's just available on Tafutu order. You can catch it on, I think, up here in ADHB. So yeah, just a really 
really good resource. And another one that's quite good for oral antibiotics in particular is Starship Clinical Guidelines, yes, isn't it? Yes, definitely. So anything kind of pediatric related, if there's a link through to Starship Guidelines, I always check that. It's usually got very clear flow charts that you can go through for each point. The only probably difference or difficulty I have with them sometimes is the medications that are available within the Starship Guidelines aren't always available in the community. But yeah, but you know, that's okay. We find alternatives, so we make it work. And to be fair, the guidelines are really based for in-house, aren't they? But they benefit us because if they're using them, we want to be using them as well for our patients. Definitely. Another really good resource that I tend to use, and I'm sure that you're the same, is Health Navigator for patient information. Do you use that quite a bit? Every day. I used to print it out, but now I'm more resourceful and climate aware that I don't tend to print out the resources. I tend to just text them to patients. Like, do you do similar and kind of, because it's free, it's data free. Yeah, it depends really. So sometimes I will text and and occasionally I will print out. And also as well, I've noticed on Health Navigator that they often have a clinician tab and a patient tab too. So sometimes that's a good way of, if I need a bit of extra information about something, having a look on that. And because they've got the ibuprofen and paracetamol calculators on there as well, which I find quite helpful on Health Navigator. And just an FYI that Health Navigator is data free, so the patient doesn't have to have a Wi-Fi connection or whatever on their phone. They're able to access it even if they don't have data. Wow. Again, I didn't know that. (laughs) I only knew that from um, my Health Pathways work. What's another resource that you tend to use? Anything kind of international based, Laura? A good one that I discovered when I was at university was Up to Date. And that's a, a really good resource if you need more than just the basic amount of information on a particular condition. So other nurse practitioners out there are probably are aware of the fact that it can be quite difficult to know mm-hmm. everything about everything. But there's no way we're going to know everything about everything. So every now and now again, something will come along and I'm like, actually, I need a lot more information about this. That's usually where I'll go if that's the case, mainly because it's, mm-hmm. a, it's a long resource with a lot of information in it so it's the sort of thing I often won't turn to with the patient in the room it's often something that I'll go to later on in my own time just to have a look and see all the other bits and pieces that I need to know about the condition the management complications etc it's not a free resource unfortunately but there are some free pages that you can look at on it which is what I I utilize I also use Hiako Hiringa quite a bit. I saw that they have a EPIC dashboard available that you can sign in as a clinician and review your prescribing. Fabulous. And what that prescribing data looks like for you as a clinician. So yeah, I was having a good look at it last night for something else. And I was like, wow, I didn't know that this feature was available. So as a clinician, you know, if you're out there, you can sign up to this and just have a look at what you're actually prescribing and kind of what that looks like for the community that you're serving as well. I'm most definitely going to have a look at that too. It's got really good resources just in terms of they do do some primary care podcasts as well. The content isn't similar to this at all. It's more kind of management of certain things, but they've just got some great stuff on there. Like we know um, one of our diabetes NP candidates up here in Auckland and she's written some great articles for it in her specialty diabetes as well so it's just got some really great kind of learning point especially around diabetes and the new oral agents it's really informative I've found for myself. Fabulous and I think all of those new NP candidates or new graduate nurse practitioners will start to get some benefit out of those resources as well going forward I know that in my new graduate year they were invaluable for me. Agree. 
So Laura, some of the services I also use in the community would be a physiotherapist. Do you often refer your patients to physiotherapy, like with any injuries or osteoarthritis, or do you kind of engage them quite early or... Every day, yes. Mm. So often I'll either refer either on the first presentation or sometimes the second presentation, depending on what the injury or condition is. I'm referring to physiotherapies for a number of things, actually, including things like anxiety, which is quite interesting. I didn't realize that physiotherapists do a lot of things, actually, that we wouldn't normally account to their practice. So now we're interviewing uh, Stella Watman-Harding, who's a physiotherapist working in the community. Welcome, Stella. Thanks for having me. Tell us a little bit about yourself, kind of as a physiotherapist in the community. Sure. I've been working for 32 years in physiotherapies and just over the years have just honed my skills as a manual or manipulative therapist and have worked in various private practices throughout Auckland where my expertise is obviously musculoskeletal and a special interest in stress management and breathing pattern disorders. Yeah and that's not something a lot of people know about physios right is the fact that is that they can do other things like stress management breathing so I, I suppose as it's developing a rapport with your local physio clinics and establishing which physios out there have those skills because not every physio will have those skills mm. and not all physios have done postgraduate training mm. and that I think finding someone that has done that you know then they're, they're specialists in manual therapy so it depends what you're wanting for yeah. treatment and to ask I suppose what what sort of qualifications have you got how long have you been in practice and then developing that trust before you'd think about referring a patient to someone like us that's interesting I never it never occurred to me really that you should definitely Mm. be establishing that sort of relationship with the physios that you're referring to yeah I agree Laura because what you see is a little bit of a disconnect between services in the community like Historically, I think when, you know, 30 years ago in medicine, we used to have more of a rural kind of focus for primary care, but now we've become more urbanized, our skill sets are growing, a lot of professions work at the top of their scope and have varied specialty or profession within healthcare at its maximum and interconnecting those relationships with each other and the communities that we serve as well as we should and could have. When you think of a, a physio comes out of their undergraduate training, having experienced a little bit of all those fields of practice you come out with a very broad knowledge of how to utilize physiotherapy in rehabilitation whether or not it's a cardiorespiratory situation or if it's a neurological patient who's recovering from stroke or suffering with cerebral palsy and wanting to learn how to walk to something like what I specialize in so it's 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 establishing what sort of physio you want and then it's having the right specialist physio who is skilled in that area so that you know your patient's going to get the best care absolutely so what sort of injuries complaints like sort of ailments should you really engage with physio just broadly sure so I, I think we're we're experts in 
musculoskeletal injury. So if it's an acute injury, if it's been going on for a long time, it's had repetitive strain, for instance. We also specialize in movement analysis. So if you think it's not injury related, but they have this unexplainable pain, um, we're able to assess movement so that we can try and work out, is it a postural problem? Is it an overuse problem? Is it a muscle balance problem? So that those are just very loose, big, big terms. But yes, we see back strain, neck strain, thoracic strain, headaches, any sort of sprain. We're a lot more careful, I suppose, now with diagnostics, with patients, giving them a label of what they've torn or rather than catastrophizing, often use that word strain or sprain and keep it really simple. But there's that whole breathing sort of side. That's the other element that I would see quite a bit of that breathing pattern disorder sort of patient. So not necessarily a hyperventilator, but maybe a breath holder or someone that suffers with stress and yourselves might have identified that that breathing may be an element could do with addressing. Are there any resources that we'd, you would recommend to patients if they're unable to access physio due to financial restraint? Yeah. The ACC Sports Smart site, that's really great for injury prevention. So unfortunately, if you get someone who's already injured themselves, but directing people to that, that's really useful. So that's got, there's all sorts of um, useful information on that. So the ACC Sports Smart, Sports New Zealand balance is better and it's not just about balance exercises it's just about balance as in movement generalized movement just healthy more movement but being balanced about it talking back to headaches for instance so that's not accident related but to direct someone to neck exercises or there's tons of those obviously so you're suggesting be quite specific though with those resources yeah yes so it's needing the it's needing the diagnosis first. So back to your headache example. So again, if it's a, it's just because the person is jaw grinding and they're an apical breather, then directing them to correct breathing technique. You know, you could go to breathingworks.com and learn a little bit about breathing there. But if it's because their trapezius muscles are tight and they actually need to learn how to lengthen and stretch their traps, then you're directing them to a muscle stretching. Yeah, so if they can afford it, it's definitely better to refer them to you <laughs> just by the sounds of that. But I think it's just a quite clear with everything. It's not a one size fits all. That's such a good point. Well, thank you, Stella. You're welcome. So that brings us to the end of this episode, Laura. I think we're aware that there's many resources that we might not have covered that have or could have some great value for other nurse practitioners around the region, hey? Yeah, and we want to hear what your resources are too. So anything that you look at day to day that you find helpful, please let us know. And you can do that a couple of ways. So firstly, you can look at the Hawara MP Instagram page. That's H-A-U-O-R-N-P. Instagram and or our Gmail. So that's hawarnp at gmail.com. That's right. Laura, tell us what exciting episode we have next week. Well, next week we are absolutely pumped because we have New Zealand's first nurse practitioner, Deborah Harris, on for an interview. It's really exciting. I'm so fizzed for this. 
it's going to be just, I think, a career highlight getting to talk with the first NP in Aotearoa, the one that kind of paved the way for the rest of us. It's a really exciting time for us. Absolutely. Cool. So join us next week when we interview New Zealand Aotearoa's first nurse practitioner, Deborah Harris. Kakite. Bye.